is the one that we've been wanting to share, we've been wanting to say since we started this study. I mean, I've wanted to say everything we've said about it, but um, there's a lot of, uh, lot of detail in the scriptures about government, and um, there's a lot of, uh, of opinions, there are a lot of opinions about it. Um, I'm calling this message Hope and Government today because that's really the issue. That's the issue of our attitudes, it's the issue of our sentiments, and it's the issue of our, at times, our idolatry. One way to define idolatry is when you place or give something to somebody else what you should have given to God. That's one Think about it. One way to define it. If God should get it, Jesus said, um, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, render to God the things that are God's. If it should be something that I should give to God and I give it to something else, then I've taken something from him that I could have used in worship. And worship doesn't mean singing. Singing is worship, but worship doesn't mean singing. Worship is, is your life lived for God's glory in his presence. That's wisdom. And so uh, when, when I give something to something else, that isn't God, that, sh- that God should have received. I know that's a complicated way to say it. But let's say, that, um, let's say that fear, for example. I'm afraid of what man might do to me. I'm afraid of people hurting me or fear. Fear is a great motivator. It's a great uh, cause for a lot of the choices people make emotionally. Without reason, without, without the word, without revelation, without faith, we make decisions based on fear all the time. And, um, and the Bible has a lot to say about that. But if you study the concept of fear in the Bible, you were made with the capacity to experience this awe, this sense of awe, because you had a creator. You do have a creator who's infinitely glorious and omnipotent and powerful. And Jesus said, don't fear man who can just destroy your body, but fear God who can destroy both body and soul in hell. You see, the, the, the problem isn't that, well, when we're afraid of danger or loss or people or whatever, something less than God, then that's, then that's one kind of fear. But the fear we have for God is awe and respect. And so that's another kind of fear. I don't think that's how it works because we're told to fear God and not to fear man throughout the Bible. My favorite place is Nehemiah 4.14. Do not be afraid of them. Rather trust in God and fight for your families. Nehemiah 4.14, as they stand on the wall. We're not want to see that yet. And so, and so the, the concept of fear I believe is wrong when you give it to something less than God. And God says, don't be afraid of man. And he says, fear not for I'm with you. I think that it's because your fear is not supposed to be directed toward these lesser things, especially if you have God and Christ. And more importantly, God has you in Christ. Then it doesn't matter what happens. You're going to be resurrected. And that's why we have the gospel today. That's why we have the Bible today, because Christians believe that. I'm messing up my pulpit up here, Lou. It's, it's my fault. I, it's, I, you have to be smarter than your equipment. We always said that in the army, and so we're not there. Um, but, the, but the concept of fear is a way, I think, of getting at this idea of giving something to, to that which isn't God, being an error, a mistake, when I should have given that to God. If I'm fearing the Lord, I really don't have time to be afraid of what man might do to me. I, don't, I won't be motivated by, well, the consequences that'll happen if I serve God. Well, my friends won't like me. Well, are you afraid of your friends and their, their, their opinions? Or are you afraid of God in the sense of awe? Which one do you value? 
And see, that's that competing idea. That's why I don't think you can do fear one, fear two. I think fear is, there's a legitimate expression of this awe, and then anything else is illegitimate. And so what I'm, what I'm getting at is we tend, we tend in America to be nostalgic about our founding and the mirac- almost miraculous way this small group of smallpox-ridden, starving, shoeless, sockless, couple thousand at one point or less, army defeated the strongest military force in the world at the time in 1776 through uh, 81. Is it six? No, it's longer. It's eight years. 83. Okay. Thank you. Like we we get this idea of this nostalgia about the, the founding and we should. It's magnificent what God did in backing the move of the Continental Congress. And he showed up in so many ways, especially in that first year to keep the the work alive when it could have easily died. Washington, if you had someone besides Washington, it probably wouldn't have worked. If you had a great captain of history who could do the math, it probably wouldn't have worked. Washington was not a great captain of history. He was the man we needed. He was a, 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 an aristocratic Virginian who had poise in the face of overwhelming adversity. And that's what we needed. We need somebody with poise that said, okay, we'll back up. Okay, we'll take a stand here. Oh, they beat us. Okay, we'll back up. And you needed that because we lost so many times. That's why the big Hail Mary pass on Christmas night of 1776 when they took down um, the, uh, the Hessians in the, in the, across the Delaware raid. And we get nostalgic about these things, and that's America. That's our country. That's where we're from. And it's the land where my fathers died, the land of the pilgrim's pride. That it's, it's, we love it. And often I hear patriots who love our country and its founding, and I am a patriot in the sense that I see God did something here and we're aligned with the inalienable rights endowed by our creator. We're thinking of God and our founding. That's, that's where my patriotism lives. And we, we do something that's a mistake. We forget the faith of the founding and the attitude those people had. They weren't believing in the goodness of the American spirit as they were fighting. They were believing in God Almighty, and they were calling for days regularly, all the time. They're calling for days of contrition and fasting and, and, uh, and, and prayer for God to forgive us of our wickedness and to save us in, in, our, in our contest. They're constantly, nationally, and, and all, the, the, all the colonies, all the states are asking for, for solemn days of prayer and, uh, and, and uh, condescension before God, that, that kind of humbling attitude. That was the national attitude. There was not this, uh, we have this fighting unified spirit that's going to win. We will carry the day because it's us. That was not the attitude of the founders. And, w- and when you lose the thought that gave you the blessing, right? When you lose that we're beseeching almighty God for his providence, and that's our only hope. When you lose that thought, then you lose the basis for the blessing that you have. And that brings us to where patriots are today. Very often I'll hear people that I enjoy and appreciate with their attitude about economics or military responsibilities or, or whatever the task is, whatever the, the topic is, the individual responsibility factor that is part of bearing God's image. You need to do your work and feed your family and have something left to provide for others. That is the New Testament work ethic. 
And as much as we embodied that and embraced that, we've got this magnificent prosperity born really of the middle class and this one bubble in world history that's never existed. And, and until Jesus comes, there won't be anything near like what we've had here and the prosperity because of this, this idea of unleashing the, in, the, the power of individual responsibility and, and, and accountability to, to sink or swim on your own recognizance. It's a beautiful thing because it's how God made us and it's acknowledging man's responsibility before the creator. But here's what happens. Here's what happens. One side of the, I think, false dichotomy in the politics of our country, we've got two sides, you know, the elephants and the donkeys, the, the red and the blue, the, the, whichever side you're on, G.I. Joe and Cobra, the good and the bad. Um, I threw that in there for the 80s kids. Um, you've got this idea in this dichotomy of um, how do we look at the government? And it's weird to see both sides looking at it the same way. The liberal approach is that government, since we don't have God and we don't believe in God generally, we don't make our decisions based on God's revelation as a platform. Since we don't do that, and that's not really what we hold to, the liberal side will hope in government as a replacement for God. But more and more what you're hearing is the other side hopes in government to solve the problems too. And we hang our hopes on elections and we look for uh, political solutions to spiritual problems. Why are you talking about this, Pastor? Well, see, God is the king, and king means government. And if your worldview doesn't allow for the word of God to speak into this topic, then you're arrogantly closing yourself off from what God would reveal. The, the word of God is clear, that God has expectations of every individual, and as we've discussed in this study, that's the first level of government. What are you doing with you? Jordan Peterson says, make your bed. That's a you doing with you thing. That's why he's successful, because he's touched on something that's very clear in a biblical worldview, in a biblical frame. You're an individual with individual responsibilities. Every mouth comes with two hands. Figure out how to use these things with skill. God made you magnificently. Be magnificent, right? And so, so that's the first level of government. I'm not talking about politics. I'm not talking about uh, blue and red. I'm not talking about Trump and Maxine Waters. If we're going to talk about clowns, I'll call everybody that's a clown a clown. I'm sorry if you're a Trump person. Look, I'll vote for the person that I think will do the best job. And, um, and that'll usually be somebody on the red ticket the way I understand it. Okay. But let's face it. He's a showman. He's, he's a media product. He always has been since before he was really on TV. I knew who Trump was because of the news stuff about he's the, the quintessential millionaire, billionaire, uh, real estate guy in the 80s because he was all over the tabloids, all over in the news all the time. I didn't know the name of anybody's wife except Trump, and then I knew two of his wife's names when I was a kid. He's been, he's been a, a, a person in media in the national consciousness all the time. And that's been his kind of shtick. And, and I never watched his show, but I've seen some clips and I'm like, oh, he's the bad guy. And so the silly people that consume the, the, the media see him as the bad guy and they want to see the good guy in place. And that's really where we're, it's in theater. So it's ridiculous. It's, it's a clown show. I think that's my opinion of the whole thing. And I don't like to talk about politics and individuals because that's not where we make our decisions. We make our decisions on principle. Do we kill babies or not? 
Okay, are babies humans or are they not humans? That's the kind of question we should ask, as God said, about various topics. And that's not the only topic. Do I have the responsibility to provide and protect for my family? Or do I not have that autonomy and responsibility and freedom with my own person? Right? That's, the, that's called the Second Amendment. That's what I'm talking about. And, and while we're on the platform and the principles, let me just share with you. Um, for years, for 30 plus years, uh, Christians voted on one issue, one issue voters, who, who is pro-abortion and who is anti-abortion. It was the one issue. And I was always bothered by that because that's really not the problem of government. The problem with government is that they have guns. The problem with government is that they can pull a gun on you and you can't pull a gun on them. And that's the law. They have the law and the law has the sword. That's the problem of government. And so in China, over the years, we've seen the atrocities of the China, the single child policy in China, which has destroyed so much of, of, of generational wealth because of these ridiculous communistic central controlling policies. But that's the nature of communism. In China, do you know that there are records, there, it's filtered out, even though the, the communists clamped down. We know of forced governmentally induced abortions on those people. Do you know about that? Is that part of your conscience? I need to provide uh, like a, a news source for this. But did you know that governments in the world, it's crazy for us Americans to think this, have in totalitarian authority forced abortions on families, forced sterilizations on people's bodies. This is why I'm a Second Amendment first kind of guy. If I've got the Second Amendment, nobody can force an abortion on me. You see what I mean? Like, because government has power. Everybody's worried about what women are doing to their, and we should. I mean, murder's, murder's a problem. It's one of the reasons for government. But just Genesis 9, but just think about it. When government has that much power and it has no moral compass, it can do horrible, atrocious things. That's what the 20th century taught us. So I, I don't mean to digress too much, but what I am trying to illustrate as we open the Bible today is that our hope can't be in the government. It can't be in human government. Our hope for the redress of spiritual, moral problems in the individual hearts can't be from government. We have this idea that we saw this amazing thing that happened in American history, and we want to see that happen again. But the reason that happened is because you had a massive, uh, overwhelming population, majority population, you know, high 80s, 90 percentile of the, of the whole massive population that believed that God was their creator, they were responsible to him, and Jesus was their savior, and that wasn't forced nationally down by some sort of fiat. This was the, that's why they came here, because they wanted to say that according to the scriptures. And they had their Bibles and they said, this is more important than anything else. And that was the attitude of those people. And the, the resulting system, the resulting prosperity that followed the creation of the system is only because of that individual grassroots spiritual level. And what does that mean? That means that God had done a work in individual hearts called making disciples. The reason you can't go build a nation and give them democracy, we just learned this all through the early 2000s. The reason that's, that's a farce, right? And all that time and money spent on the people want freedom and we're going to go give it to them and that kind of attitude. Hey, I fought for that. I went there and I, I uh, gave it my best okay, on the streets of Bakuba in Iraq for my one little year that I got to be over there. I came in 2003 with the doctrine that we're here to give you freedom. We even called it freedom, Operation Iraqi Freedom. Guess what? 
They're telling us from day one, the doctors that can speak English are saying, we don't want freedom. We're not people for freedom. We want security. That's what the sheikhs give us. We want freedom. We need strong men. We don't need your democracy. They're telling us that in, in April of 2003 on the street, just people in the professional districts where, I'm, where I got to stand my post. We don't want freedom. We want, we want security. That's the Iraqi people. You, you need to learn this, which is, of course, true and starting to look like the American people, too. More and more. We want, we want security, not freedom. What I'm trying to show you is the blessings that we have, the blessings that we have came from disciple making. They came from the actual mission Jesus had given us, and we as a people have lost sight of the mission. We've lost sight of the manual. We're kind of like Josiah's generation where we're sweeping up the temple and somebody finds a copy of the law, and then they read it and say, oh, no, we're way off track. We've completely lost the, 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 the idea. And it's because you try to excise God from your life and live your life as though he's not there because you can't see him and we want to walk by faith and not by, by, by sight and not by faith. But we're told to walk by faith, not by sight. The evidence that I'll show you for what I'm saying is the bubble of American freedom and prosperity unparalleled, unexperienced by the average person in all of world history in every culture and civilization the bubble that is this thing that we are doing our very best to pop and go back to a vassalage where people are, belong to the state as the, as, the, as the government's chattel. That's, that's what's happening. It's what you're seeing, and it breaks our hearts, and we want to fix it. Okay, pastor, you got a problem. We're becoming enslaved to our government because it's being overpowered, and we are underpowered, and so we're going to fix it. We're going to fix We're going to vote the bums out. We're going we're gonna to empty the swamp. We're going to drain the swamp, and that's our only hope. I heard more than one person that I respect say in 2016 that so-and-so was our only hope. Well, the alternative to so-and-so was Jezebel, and so I get what you're saying about in, in a sense. I'd rather have Nebuchadnezzar than Jezebel, I used to say. But boy, boy, that was our only hope. No, it never was our hope. We, we do not trust in people. Cursed is the man who puts his trust in man, saith the Lord. Our hope is in God, and our mission is not to form a civilization that is good enough for Jesus to come and say, hey, I like it, I'll rule here. Our job is to make disciples, and if God builds something from that, like he did here, so we can make more disciples worldwide like we have, then we'll do that, but that's our mission. And so that's what I'm challenging you with today. The one who has the right to tell us what he wants has told us what he wants. It's a governmental action, and we have his instructions. So um, let's go in our Bibles, please, to just to Psalm 2 and review why I'm saying we're not there. Psalm 2 is the status that you're in today. It's the circumstance that you're in today, and it's a horror to behold. And we have a lot, we could, you know, pastors like to get up and complain about the bad things in the civilization. Okay, my complaint today will be foolishness. I heard a report yesterday that the problem with the Israeli intelligence, where the, how did they let this happen? They have the most sophisticated intelligence in the world. How did this thing with these barbarians get across the, the border and do this without any knowledge? And then they killed all those people in the kibbutz and thousands of people. How did they do it? And one report was that basically we are foolish as people and our elections have had consequences in Israeli intelligence. We are dumb. 
We don't know how to make good decisions. And we make decisions that bring about elections that have real bad consequences for our allies, like the Afghanistan, like the people in Afghanistan. And, and the people that we should be opposed to end up looking like our allies, and the people that we should be supporting end up getting crushed by the people that we are really supporting. And it's because we're fools. And we think that mean tweets are, is the problem. I just, want, I just want to get rid of the mean tweets. And we don't think about what we're actually doing in government because we're still playing theater and he's the bad guy. So we've got to reject him. Um, and, uh, and, we, and then let's play about race. Let's talk about race and make that a big problem. Let's pretend like nothing's happened to address that in American history. Let's pretend like the problem of clashes of cultures happen in all civilizations and in a mixed culture like ours, you're going to have these problems. Let's pretend like that's not true and the real problem with America is racism. No, it's foolishness because people are people and God made them all in his image and all cultures are corrupted by Satan's world system. So you can't play this race game. We weren't blessed because we're Anglo civilization. We're blessed because the Anglos embrace the gospel. In Psalm 2, you have the description of why preachers like me complain about the situation. We were doing it in the 17 teens when there was such a moral decrepitude in the colonies that they thought this thing was going to rot away. And then you have what they call the Great Awakening. We'd love for God to bring a reformation of thought here in our country. But the question remains, 3,000 years old, why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? Why are all the nations opposed to God is the question. The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against Yahweh and against his Messiah saying, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. That's the summary of the way all the nations of the world are arrayed against God. And we have an answer to why that is in Luke 4. Satan tells Jesus, all of these nations, all of these kingdoms have been given to me and I give them to whoever I want. So bow down and worship me and I'll give you these kingdoms. See, you're supposed to be the one that's going to rule all the kingdoms here. You can have them. And that's, that's the testing of, of Jesus by Satan in Matthew 4 and Luke 4, as we've seen. See, that, that tells you why it's this way. It's a rhetorical question in Psalm 2. But here's the reality in heaven. We see on earth the nations rebelling against God. What you see in heaven is uh, actually a, a scene of mirth, at least at first. He who sits in the heavens laughs, the master, that's Adonai, scoffs at them, and then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them with his fury. He goes almost like, it's almost like um, in one of these mafia things where the, where the guy in charge is laughing with you and then all of a sudden he's not laughing anymore and then you're scared because it's switched. That's the picture. Someone in power thinks, oh, they're, they're rebelling again. <laughs> they're rebelling against me. What? Here comes the wrath. He switches on a dime from laughing at the foolishness of man's rebellion against him. And look what it says. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them with his fury. I don't want to deal with a God who's got wrath and fury like that. Yes, you do. Yes, you do. Think of something that you're morally outraged about. Think of, th think of something that you don't like that might happen to you. Somebody hurt you. Somebody hurt your family. Somebody do something bad to you that they didn't deserve, that you didn't deserve. And what do you want when that happens? You want that not to have happened. And you want somebody to stop it from happening to anyone else. And by the way, the people that did it, we need justice. And every human heart calls for that. And I challenge you, read Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. The opening chapter is the argument of the moral argument. Moral, everybody has morality when it starts to affect them, right? We want justice and we want somebody to, to stop the bad guy from doing the bad thing. Well, it's going to take wrath. It's going to take uh, 
anger from God. He'll terrify them with his fury, but as for me, I've installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. Now we take the New Testament as the portrayal of Jesus as the gentle and even people say meek, but they mean weak. He's a pacifist. He's weak. He's just walking around in sandals, no armor, right? And not even military sandals. He's just a peasant Judean and he's just preaching peace and love. They say Gandhi said that he, he liked your Christ, but not your Christians. And I suspect his interpretation of Christ was a passive resistance kind of thing. And a lot of people have kind of glommed on to, to a, a one kind of jaundiced portrayal of Christ in the Gospels. Yeah, he came on the, the foal of a donkey, meaning as a king coming into Jerusalem in peace because he's not bringing war to them. He's coming offering the kingdom peaceably. But he's a warlike king who will come with war as needed. When there, when there needs to be firepower, he'll bring it. And this psalm tells you that 3,000 years ago, we have a prophecy. Now, um, I would share, share this caveat about Psalm 2 and government. The, um, the, the scholars, the Hebrew scholars in the Old Testament departments will relegate this psalm, even at Dallas Seminary, they'll re relegate this psalm to royal psalms or enthronement psalms as a category because they were taught by German unbelievers to do that. And that category overrides anything in the contents so that this is just what they would sing uh, perhaps at a coronation of one of the kings in David's line. And it's just a reference to the earthly king that just got put into the throne, you know, the fifth guy after David in Judea. That's all this is. And that's what this will be used for. They'll say that's what it is. And so they'll deny messianic prophecy, the prophecy of Christ, the anointed one coming to deliver Israel. But if you listen to the details of the actual text, you won't do that because you believe in Christ, because you believe God has spoken, because you believe every word of God's word is authoritative from God. And so you can't do this German genre of Psalms override that cancels the contents of the Psalm. The things prophesied here have never happened to any Jewish king in world history. And to say, oh, it's just an exaggeration that he's going to give all the kingdoms of the earth to you as the king in Jerusalem. You get, to, you get to rule over the whole world. That's just an exaggeration. It just means, you know, that you're going to be exalted. To do that with this psalm is a big mistake. And if you're not tracking with what I'm talking about, I'm just, it's a problem of interpretation. And it's out there in the commentaries and what people are saying. And that's why you can't read Psalm 2 and apply it to your circumstance, which we do, because they've taken it away and said it just refers to people a few thousand years ago about a backwater little small kingdom in the Middle East. No, it's about the coming reign of Christ. See, the Messiah speaks in verse 7. This is messianic, meaning Christological, meaning it's about the anointed one of Israel, who we understand is Jesus of Nazareth, who's been revealed as Jesus. He says, I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. Now notice, I'm preaching from Psalm 2, and I'm saying this is the words of Jesus of Nazareth in his coronation. These are the words of Jesus, the son of David, when this event takes place. He says, I will surely tell of the decree of Yahweh. Now, sometimes the second person of the Trinity is called Yahweh, and sometimes the third person. But in this case, it's the first person who is calling this Messiah his son. I will surely tell of the decree of Yahweh. He said to me, you're my son. Today I've begotten you. And in what sense can you say he's begotten today? Some would identify, many identify this as the resurrection. But the begetting as the son is the designation officially as the heir. 
Not that he has a beginning here, but that he begins to have this fiat. And I think it's still future, personally. He says, ask of me, Yahweh says to this speaker, this Messiah, Mashiach, the anointed one, ask of me and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance. Is everybody clear on what Old Testament inheritance means? Do you know what it means to get an inheritance in the Old Testament? It doesn't necessarily mean that someone dies. That's not the primary meaning of inheritance. It's what it means when we have an inheritance. It's a legacy and inheritance were passed down. That's not the primary meaning of this word in the Old Testament. In fact, when Israel conquered the land of Canaan, they called it their inheritance, and they parceled the land out, and each tribe got its inheritance in the land, except, except Levi, because God said, I will be your inheritance. Inheritance doesn't mean someone died as much as it means I own something. It means the, the designation and distribution of property. Property, does that sound like a political, politically charged government term, Property. Well, Mark said the problem with us is property. When we get rid of property, we've, we've solved it, capital. Everything is material and capital. That's the problem. Well, the Bible says God distributes inheritance. God gives. If you don't believe in God, you let the government redistribute. That's bad at it. Let, let God do that. Let, let, let's recognize God's design. Locke was right. Life, liberty, property. He says, Ask of me and I'll surely give the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. Now, this is going to be an ironic thought for you, I, I hope. But giving the nations of the earth as the ownership, as the possession of this king means maximum freedom and prosperity for those subjects. Being chained, if you will, as a slave to Jesus, being owned by him is the very best thing that could ever happen. And guess what, believers? You who are in Christ, you can't get free of him. You're in Christ and you have him, and he has you. And when somebody has you, and they bought you, and that's the language of the New Testament, he bought you with his blood, you're owned. Oh, it's such great news. And for us, by analogy, it's maximum freedom to serve God, free from the power of our sinful nature. He says, you shall break these nations with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. See, the, the New Testament um, it's a lie people tell about the New Testament, but Jesus is not powerful and, and assertive. He's passive and weak. No, the Messiah is the Messiah. Jesus is the same today, yesterday, and forever. Yesterday, today, and forever. And he is gentle with infinite power to crush, yet gentle to build. But sometimes you have to remove the, you have to clear the canvas in order to build. And that's what's described here. He's going to destroy the nations like earthenware. This is Daniel 2. This is the rock that's been cut without hands that crushes the nations and grinds them to powder, all the kingdoms of the earth. And they blow away, and then the mountain of the house of the Lord fills the whole place. That's the great mountain that that, that rock grows into. That's, you could read Daniel 2 and see it's the same prophecy. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. And now what's the response? What should the kings of the earth do with the Jewish Messiah? With Yahweh's man. Now, therefore, O king, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence. Rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son that he not become angry. You perish in the way, for his wrath may soon be kindled. Yet how happy, how blessed, should be translated happy, as we'll see second hour. How happy are all who take refuge in him. It's a clear wisdom psalm of decision. What do you do with this truth? That God's man is going to rule in God's place over God's earth and all the people that are made in God's image. That's what the history is headed towards. And that's our hope. Our only hope, Peter says, is the Lord Jesus. 
our only hope. Our only hope for righteous government is the Lord Jesus Christ. If God intervenes, if we get a break, if we get a little respite, if we, if we tone down the anti-Semitism and eradicate that and we see that our people understand the issue and begin to support God's chosen people as a national norm, not as a political policy, understand as a national norm that we the people love God and we love his people, that kind of thing. If, if, if as we do this, We'll have a respite, but that's not our hope because history is tending toward the failure of man under the influence of Satan and God's victory over that failure and salvation of man despite his stupidity and failure. That's, that's history. That's where we're going. And so what is our hope? It's not an election cycle. What is our hope? It is not politics. If my team wins, then then we win. You know, we are so primed for the teams. Do you have your football team? Is your football team doing well? Do you have your jersey for this year? Are you joining in that like arbitrary decision that these are my people? Why is this your team, by the way? I never understood this. My dad was a Cowboys guy until until Landry quit, uh, retired, and then we, we watched college ball. Um, why is that your team? Because of the virtue of the offensive line. Those people are men of integrity. That's not why it's your team. I, it may be your, I, you, you know why. It's a very personal question. Okay, I don't want to get everybody. But, but I think politics is a lot like that. I think that's how people are. We're that silly. We were told, I, I've, heard, uh, I've heard studies that have been shown that the social media impact on elections. Now watch this. The impact of the social media engines on elections will absolutely swing the elections in this country. I've heard, I heard, recently heard of an exhaustive study that said if you have a bias for one of the political sides in the social media, like if the Facebook, like you know, if, the, if the meta thing is trending toward promoting name recognition and, and you know, and, and, and tending in a certain direction it, and, and, and Twitter or whoever else, if they tend in a certain direction, that swings the election by a number of points. That's a known thing. That means that you have an electorate that has absolutely no clue what it's doing. They have no idea what anything means. They have no idea what's happening, what the people represent. They're picking jerseys. They're like, I hear that name a lot. And, you know, I don't really know anything about our country. Do, do I have the right to vote? Uh, uh, I don't know, but, uh, but I saw this name, and so I'll vote for that. That's how we are. It's, it's tragic. And, and what's tragic, what's also funny is the word woke. Woke means that I have awakened to uh, a stupor of ignorance, and I am condemned to that by a consensus view of pop culture and social media. I, I think that's what woke means. Woke means I'm still asleep. <laughs> so your hope is not politics. Not in, not in Psalm 2, not in Daniel 2, not in the prophecies of what's coming. And, it's, and, and the whole of Revelation, chapter 6 through 19, is about uh, something that may be very near to us, near term, the future history of God's wrath on the nations in the tribulation, time of Jacob's trouble. Our hope is not, you're not going to political your way out of that. You're not going to military your way out of that. And by the way, in those days, all of the nations arrayed themselves against Israel and Satan's anti-Semitic agenda, all of them. All the nations. 
whatever ones are left. I, I, I won't be there. But um, think about what that implies for all the nations. No, well, not except for this one. Our hope is not in warfare. We're not going to war our way out of man's sin, depravity, rebellion against God, and anti-Semitism. We're not. It's not in warfare. And I'm not saying that we don't have to fight wars. I am a former war fighter. I believe that you have to stand your post and protect your family, and some people need killing. That's the Bible. I'm sorry. It's a horrible thing to have to say, but we'll be sure to say it on Sunday morning. Some people need killing. That's what the scriptures teach. And, and it's horrible, and it's unthinkable, but the reason they need killing is even worse. The reason. For example, what, uh, what the Hamas terrorists did in, um, in Israel. Your hope is not in your temporal circumstances. If I could just get a job, if I could just get this girl, if I could just have something, that's something I could plan my ho- put my hopes on. We do it. It's something we can look at, we can look for, we can, and you're taught, you're taught all through the culture, young people, to have dreams and to have a big goal and to work towards your goal. But that's not your hope. Yeah, aspire to great things in your education and in your, pro- pro- uh, your profession. Aspire to hard work and do great work with, with whatever skills God has given you but still not your hope. Hope is the expectation of the good things God has promised. And so that's not going to be from your temporal circumstances. The apostle Paul was beheaded by the government of Rome, the greatest Christian that has had the greatest impact on us because of his influence on Luke. Luke and Acts is a third of the New Testament and his 13 epistles. He says he's the least that makes him the greatest. That's what Jesus said in the math. The least of the saints, the apostle Paul is killed. His life ends early after the, as we think about it, because the Romans execute him like they executed Peter, like they executed Jesus. Your hope isn't in government. It's not in temporal circumstances. It's not in man's successes, the things that men can accomplish. We can do great things if we just put our heads together. We can, we can. We used calculator sized uh, computers. They were huge computers, but today they fit in, in less than a calculator, right? Much less than a calculator. And we went to the moon, with that. And some of you are like, no, we didn't, but yeah, we did. And, and the, that's a mere, it's, it's like a, a, almost a modern miracle. It's not a miracle of God, but it's, it's a fantastic feat. It's amazing what we've been able to accomplish. You might think, but, but compare that to the God who made the moon and all the other stuff and how big space really is. And we, we basically walked to the mailbox and back. <laughs> Pardon me. We opened the front door and stepped on the porch and went back in. We've accomplished something compared to the vastness of space that God has made and holds together by his powerful word. We're not to hope in man's successes. It's not a sufficient hope. This is the point of the study of God and government is you cannot be an idolater about political processes and be a disciple of our savior. You can't be on mission and, and make this other thing your mission. Our hope is in the coming of Christ for us. Our hope, a blessed hope, is Jesus coming for us in John 14. Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Beloved, I know that we have a tendency to read that and think, this means when I die, Jesus comes to get me. But think about what you're saying Christians die all the time. Christians are dying all around the world constantly. 
we don't think he's leaving the right hand of the Father and zipping down and zipping people up constantly. Is that what he's doing? It says he's making intercession for us at the right hand of the Father. This is not about when you die physically. This is about the resurrection. It's when he comes to get us. This is the first rapture passage in the teaching of Jesus. This is the one where he teaches it, and then Paul uh, talks about it in 1 Thessalonians 4. This is the topic. This is our hope. He is coming for us. And when he comes, there's a judgment. And that's Christian eschatology. The thing you have to look forward to in the end times is that Jesus is coming for you. And at that point, he will give you an evaluation of what you did with his word and the power of God, the Holy Spirit, in making disciples the actual mission you were given, the actual life's work that we've all been given. And we don't think about it that way. We're not on mission or hoping in temporal circumstances, or we're hoping we'll get the girl, or we're hoping something. And getting the girl and working the politics and all the things are part of life, but they're not the mission, they're not life. That's all I'm trying to say. In Matthew 28, 18 through 20, Jesus said, Jesus came up and spoke to the disciples saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Do you hear government in that? All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Well, Lord, use it. Shut down Hezbollah and don't let them attack from the north. The rape squads of the Hamas, stop it, right? Because authority has been given to you. Watch what he says he's doing with his authority right now. That part is coming. The reckoning and the rod of iron, all that, that's the future. That's called the second advent. But right now, Jesus said, all authority has been given to me in heaven on earth. Now listen carefully. What does he do with that vast power? What does he do with that authority? He says, now we're going to do the next phase of the mission. My mission to reveal the Father is now committed to you. He's about to say it in verse 19. I commend that mission to you, and for this next phase, this is what you're doing. And this is preparatory. It's merciful to the unbeliever because he gets a maximum opportunity to hear the gospel. And it is, it is merciful to you and me because we were once unbelievers. And he doesn't bring the heat right away. He brings mercy and a grace period, and that's the time in which we live. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations internationally. All through Matthew, only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. All through the gospels and Jesus' earthly ministry before the crucifixion, go to Israel and Israel only. Don't go to the Samaritans. Don't go, I mean, he does talk to the Samaritan's son, but that's not the mission. Don't go to uh, the Gentiles. The Syrians come across the border to hear of Jesus. We heard Matthew 4, but, but it's a mission to Israel. And now it's a Israeli believers, Christians, and the power of the Holy Spirit are going to go to all the nations. That's what we're doing. We're the church. We're going to all the nations to make disciples within those nations. The weird thing that's happened is sometimes nations disciple up in mass. That's what this was. That's why it's bad. That's why it's gone south. That's why we can't self-govern. Because we were a nation on mass of disciple up believers, and now we're not. And until we regain that, there's not any hope to regain what we were because that's what we were. So I'm kind of asking for a national reformation. I'm asking God to do a miracle. I don't know when the timeline takes us to the rapture and the, and the, the, the tribulation. I don't, nobody knows when that happens. So we live today like it doesn't happen for a long time. And we, we serve and we make disciples and God could do a national work. But that's not the mission. The mission is not building nations. It's discipling the people of the nations. How do you disciple? How do you baptize? One person at a time. The, the norm and the way it always works is that an individual believes in Christ, not a group. Well, but the group of the Delawares all got baptized that one day. They all believed in Christ. 
It's, it's watch the Bible pattern. It's individuals trusting in Christ. And then all of Cornelius' household are believers and they're all baptized. They're all speaking in the foreign languages, indicating that the spirit is present there in that transitional phase of Acts. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them into the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And Pastor Dave concludes that verse 19, I believe verse 19 is the end of evangelism. You don't baptize an unbeliever anywhere in the Bible. You baptize only a believer. Check out the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts 8. So what are we saying? Well, why are you baptizing them? Because you've evangelized them and then you baptize them. Because that's what Jesus commands. It's the second ordinance. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And you go make disciples of the nations. You disciple, make students of the nations by teaching. That's why this pulpit or any pulpit. That's why the study of the word. That's why the theological seminary. That's why the Greek and the Hebrew expertise. That's why the textual criticism in Old and New Testaments. That's why we do what we do. Because we're supposed to be teaching them, all the nations, to keep, observe, guard, do all that I've commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. There are lots of things we could choose to do with our time and energy. There are lots of places we could put our hope, but there's only one right one. There are lots of life missions and goals we could adopt, but there's one mission Jesus has given the church. And the church isn't me. The church isn't the clergy. The church are the people, the believers in Christ. The church is us. And I'm not saying you have to go to theological seminary and be a pastor and teach from the original languages as I do. I'm not saying you have to do that. I'm saying if that's your spiritual gift, you should definitely do that. But everybody has a different gift. Everybody's got a different function. We're a cell and there are millions of proteins. Y'all, maybe it's billions, I don't know. Lots of proteins in the cell and they all have different jobs and they're structured so that they fit together and do their jobs together. And the cell is healthy and it lives. You can't all have the same protein floating around. It's a dead cell. You've got to have everybody. But that cell has a mission and that mission is not for Sunday. That mission is life to make disciples. That's our hope. If you want to see a restoration to the United States of America, there will, I predict, this, I, I'm, not a, I'm not a prophet, but I'll make a prediction. I predict there is no hope for national restoration in the United States unless we make disciples of the people here. They have to become believers and they have to become doers of God's word. That's it. That's the only hope. Our Father, we thank you for eternal life. The eternal life we have because of the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's always been our only hope, Father. And we have at times as broken, fallen, sinful, short-sighted, unimaginative humans as that we are, Father, we have lost sight of the mission at times. We have gotten distracted by the details. Don't let our jobs, our families, the important things that you have us doing for you, don't let these things, these details become our mission and distract us from a life of worship and making disciples. Strengthen us, Father, mature us. Let us do wise and mature work. We need strong marriages and healthy, healthy spiritual lives to train children. We need children that have every possible opportunity to reject the wiles of the devil and embrace the gospel and be about your work. Father, and we have so many temptations and distractions surrounding us. It is no question at all, even in these United States, that this is the devil's fallen, broken system. 
Glorify yourself here in our church family, Father, as we do this work for whatever time you give us to do it. Father, the days, however many there are, are short. The time is now. Help us make uh, the decisions we need to make to align ourselves with your objectives and put our hope entirely on the coming and the appearing of our Savior. In Christ's name we pray, amen.